Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the blowing up of the Nova Hakovka Dam, presumably by the Russians, which has caused catastrophic flooding and environmental damage downstream, making it unlikely that a Ukrainian military attack from the south into Crimea could be launched until the floodwaters recede and the ground dries. Joining us is Dr. Sasha Dozik, a London-based author from Zaporizhia, Ukraine, and a special project curator at the Ukrainian Institute in London. She holds research affiliations with Goldsmiths and Birkbeck at the University of London, and we will discuss the possible impact on Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia as the water level drops to the point the plant cannot pump water to cool its reactors. Then we will speak with Simon Schuster, a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and Foreign Policy. And his forthcoming book is The Fight is Here, Vladimir Zelensky and the War in Ukraine. His latest article at Time magazine is Inside Ukraine's Push to Try Putin for War Crimes, and we will discuss Simon's earlier conversations with President Zelensky about a possible Russian destruction of the dam and how what just happened might alter plans for the Ukrainian counteroffensive just starting. Then finally, we'll speak with Emily Channel Justice, the director of the Temurdi Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research on political activism and social movements in Ukraine since 2012. Her latest book is Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine. We'll discuss the impact of this latest Russian attack on infrastructure on Ukrainian civilians and the latest reporting at the Washington Post indicating that a small Ukrainian military unit independent from President Zelensky carried out the destruction of the Nord Stream gas pipelines, not the Russian government, as the US government had claimed, and most journalists, including myself, had reported. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Dr. Sasha Dolshik, who is a London-based author from Zaporizhia, Ukraine, and a special project curator at the Ukrainian Institute in London. She holds research affiliations with Goldsmiths and Birkbeck at the University of London. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Sasha Dovshik. Thank you so much for having me. 
So, Sasha, already we learned that about 17,000 people have been evacuated from this dam that the Russians blew up, the Nova Kakovka Dam on the Dnieper River, which is causing massive flooding and also untold environmental damage, which we can certainly talk about. But since you're from Zaporizhia, where the Europe's biggest nuclear power plant is, it's water, of course, to cool the power plant comes from the Dnieper, which is where all the water is being drained from now. So what's the situation? I understand that the nuclear power plant has a, a separate lake. So tell me what, how much danger there is from that and that possibility of nuclear meltdowns, let alone the rest of what we need to talk about. Uh, well, yes, thank you for this question. It was the first thing that I thought about when I read the horrible news this morning about the blowing up of the uh, Novakohovka Dam. Um, indeed, uh, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which has been occupied by uh, the Russian army since March 2022, uh, its, uh, its reactors are cooled with the water from this um, water reservoir in Novakohovka. However, because of the nuclear blackmail and of constant shelling, uh, the reactors at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant uh, have not been operating since September 2022. So they do not need that much water to cool them down. And the water in this lake near the power station has not, has not been evaporating um, because the, the reactors are in this cool regime. So currently there is no danger for the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Um, it does not mean that the water supply does not need to be constantly ma maintained. And another danger is that we cannot rely on Russians who are currently occupying the plant to run it properly and according to all procedures, we see what they have done in Novakahovka, what kind of technological disaster they have caused. And there is absolutely no reason to believe that they will uh, behave reasonably at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So our only option is to demilitarize it as soon as possible and make sure that it is under the control of Ukrainian experts and of Ukrainian professionals who know how to operate the plant and who also cherish the land where the plant is stay, uh, standing and will not cause willfully or just out of its uh, of this stupidity and ignorance a technological disaster that we are currently witnessing downstream. Uh, Sasha, you mentioned uh, downstream from where the Russians blew up the dam. There's reports that there's going to be massive environmental damage, not to mention the loss of property and lives. Uh, since 17,000 people have been evacuated. Uh, and downstream, of course, you have Kherson, and then uh, further downstream into the Black Sea. So my understanding is that there's going to be an enormous amount of pollution. Is that your understanding as well? It is really hard to measure at this point how terrible the devastation, environmental damage will be. But one thing that we should bear in mind is that uh, the soils in the Kherson region are some of the most fertile soils on the continent. They are rich in what is called black soil, Chornozem, um, which is uh, basically very, very rich Ukrainian um, land, which produces much of the food, one, much of the agricultural 
goods that feed not only Europe, but also the Middle East, the African continent. And now all these lands, all these soils, all this agriculture are lost to Ukraine because they are flooded. And apart from the devastation of the flooding, there is also the danger of the pollution, which you have mentioned. Um, and also of uh, mining, because Russians have, of course, heavily mined this region, uh, waiting, expecting Ukrainian offensive, uh, expecting Ukrainian army to liberate these territories in the southern Ukraine. So this region is heavily mined, and now all these mines are being moved around by the streams of water, and this uh, situation is dangerous and predictable. We do not know where all these explosives will end up in the end. And the water supply to Crimea is apparently cut, but there's a separate canal, is there not, which I think is, is right at where the dam is. Is that also cut, the canal? Um, yes, there is the North Crimean Canal, so-called, uh, which at the moment the supply of fresh water to Crimea is also cut. So the peninsula which Russia annexed in 2014 is left without fresh water. Um, not only Crimea, but also uh, huge swaths of uh, the Zaporizhia region, my native region, of Kherson region, obviously. Um, and of, uh, I think, the Netsk region in the south as well, Mykolaiv region, are, are left without the stable water supply for civilian population. Well, the Russian propaganda uh, machinery apparently has been pretty incompetent. The initial reports on TASS came from the Russians in charge of the dam, saying all is quiet, nothing is happening. And then later on, they decided to change their tune and say that the dam was struck by Ukrainian missiles. And now they're mm -hmm. saying that the dam was struck by Ukrainian artillery. And of course, it makes absolutely no sense for Ukraine to dis destroy its own countryside, as you made clear what horrendous damage is being done. But I take it the military reason, apart from the fact that the Russians are concerned about the Ukrainian counteroffensive underway is that the road across the dam could have been used by Ukrainian forces. Is that, do you think, the military objective why the Russians blew up this dam? Um, I think that uh, just one thing that it reminds me of, just this operation of uh, Russian ideological machinery, um, it brings to mind 2014 when uh, Russian army uh, shot down a Malaysian air airplane in the Donetsk region of Ukraine. And in the first uh, minutes after it, they admitted it was their deed. And then they started producing these contradictory messages, trying to just model the water um, and make us doubt what the actual truth was. And because of the amount of these messages, of the sheer force of Russian propaganda, People just give up and they give up on their attempts to figure out what the factual reality was and they give up on the very notion of factual reality itself. Uh, this is how Russians work. This is not new. And th they are doing this again um, with the Novakohovka Dam. They just probably have not, uh, they probably did not realize how huge the damage would be. And now that they see the damage, uh, they are trying to... Um, to model our perception of this situation. 
militarily speaking, uh, I think that uh, they were um, afraid of Ukrainian offensive in southern Ukraine. And obviously, if these areas are flooded, um, it might uh, stymie the progress of Ukrainian troops. We don't quite know that. Um, it also distracts a lot of resources of the Ukrainians of the Ukrainian state. It also, um, well, basically, it's a huge distraction and it's um, a catastrophe on on the national international scale. And now. Uh, the offensive is probably not the first thing on on the mind of the Ukrainian army. But no, I'm not a military expert, so I would probably not comment any further on this. Well, it is a war crime, though, isn't it? Attacking critical infrastructure. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think uh, Ukrainian uh, Minister of Defense, Oleksiy Reznikov, has just cited uh, the article of the UN uh, which mentions the destruction of dams uh, and in the same very article, uh, the danger to civilian nuclear infrastructure among such war crimes that cannot be allowed to happen. And Russia has committed both. Russia has committed both of these crimes. But in terms of electrical generation, which is also critical infrastructure, you've got the, the main Europe's biggest nuclear power plant as Zaporizhia closed down. And then the hydroelectric plant at this dam that was just blown up, that's clearly mm -hmm. out of action as well. So there's going to be a lot of loss of electricity, is there not? Uh, that's, that's right. Um, from what I understand, the Ukrainian regions uh, have already been affected by the blowing up of the Novakahovka hydroelectric power station. But at the same time, um, this winter of Russia's constant bombing of Ukrainian um, electrical grid, of Ukrainian power stations, has shown that Ukraine is incredibly resilient. And if they overcame this winter of constant Russia's energy terrorism, I believe that they will be able to overcome this as well. So I know you're not a military expert, but there is an offensive underway in the Donbass, is there not? So this is obviously, if there was a plan to attack in the south and Russia had put up a lot of defenses, ironically, of course, these defenses have been flooded, right? Mm. How long will, will the flooding last? At what point will the ground be navigable by tanks, etc.? Do we know? Um, I think there are, again, contradictory statements at this point. Uh, the uh, Soviet, old Soviet handbooks about the possible explosion at the Novakovka dam say that the flooding may last up to a week. Uh, but the situation is uh, uh, changing every moment, so we just have to keep watching. Um, and another thing that I would like to mention is that this blowing up of the dam is, again, not new for Russia. They uh, did pretty much the same thing when they retreated from German troops in 1941 in Zaporizhia. They did blow up the Zaporizhia uh, hydroelectric power station. Um, and they flooded the region, tens of thousands of people died, including the Soviet troops. And uh, Russia did not stop before that, uh, and they did not save the lives of their own soldiers. So nothing new here. Again, uh, Russia is playing by its old playbook. 
So what do you think is the international response? Have we run out of outrage? Is there, are there <laughs> sanctions? Is there anything that can be done? Obviously, Russia's in its uh, denial mode, pumping out ludicrous propaganda. And I'm just wondering whether what the European response might be. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, we are nowhere near to running out of sanctions. Uh, I think that uh, frozen Russian assets have to be released to help Ukraine. There are like billions of uh, dollars throughout the world in frozen Russian assets, uh, the assets of Russian oligarchs. This has to be diverted to Ukraine. Um, I think uh, that um, there are world leaders who start uh, equating this crime to the use of the weapons of mass destruction because this is indeed uh, damage on a colossal, unimaginable scale. And I think this is the way to go. Uh, we just have to realize that uh, Russia has used um, a, a, a weapon of mass destruction against Ukrainian civilian population and act accordingly. Uh, recognize Russia as a terrorist state, seize all relationships with the state, um, freeze all the assets and divert all the money to help Ukraine. And what are we hearing from President Zelensky? Obviously, he's made it clear who's responsible. It's the Russians, in spite of their ridiculous, almost comical attempts to suggest that somehow the Ukrainians inflicted this hideous damage on themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, well, he has been um, in meetings with Ukrainian defense and with the Ukrainian army and with Ukrainian emergency uh, services. And the one thing that has been mentioned so far that the response will be harsh and immediate. I think he is uh, now conducting meetings with his international allies and we will soon hear what the international response to this hideous crime will be. And what are you hearing from your hometown of Zaporizhia, just in closing, Sasha? Uh, people are devastated. People are devastated all over Ukraine. Um, Zaporizhia is very close to Kherson, and probably um, it will become one of the centers where the refugees will flow from the Kherson region. Uh, another one is Mykolaiv. So yet again, Zaporizhia is on the front line, and Zaporizhia is one of the first centers which accepts um, Ukrainian civilians who are fleeing from Russia's invasion or at this stage from Russia's ecocide and crimes against Ukrainian environment. Um, I guess it will be a, a place for the displaced from, from the Kherson region for the time being. Well, Sasha, I thank you for joining us uh, here today. Uh, I know it's a very sad day for you and for, you, for your country, but... Um, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for paying attention. Uh, thank, thank you for your solidarity. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Sasha Dovshik, who is a London-based author from Zaporizhia, Ukraine, and a special project curator at the Ukrainian Institute in London. She holds research affiliations with Goldsmiths and Birkbeck at the University of London. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with a reporter about his early conversations with President Zelensky about a possible Russian destruction of the dam and how what just happened might alter plans for a Ukrainian counteroffensive just starting.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Simon Schuster, who's a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and Foreign Policy. And his forthcoming book is The Fight Is Here, Vladimir Zelensky and the War in Ukraine. And his latest article at Time magazine is Inside Ukraine's Push to Try Putin for War Crimes. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Schuster. Thank you so much. Great to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Simon. And blowing up the Hakovka Dam over the Dnieper River is considered a war crime. So that adds, I guess, to the 80,000 you've documented in your recent article. Yeah, it's very explicitly uh, identified in the Geneva Conventions. Do not bomb dams as an act of war. Um, it's, it's one of the one of the few uh, acts that's so explicitly laid out because it, it has such obvious and catastrophic consequences for the people living along the riverbanks uh, in terms of ecological damage, you know, for, for generations, in terms of loss of life, loss of economic activity. So it, it's one of the nightmare scenarios that President Zelensky has been envisioning for, for a long time. Uh, for months. Uh, I've talked to him about it, and, and, and now it seems to have finally happened. Well, we know there's going to be enormous ecological damage and agricultural damage to the farmlands downstream, but uh, already, apparently, according to Volodymyr Zelensky's website, there are 150 tons of machine oil used to, in the plant's turbines there at the hydroelectric plant that's now out of business and an additional 300 tons of, uh, of machine oil at risk of following. So that in itself is hideous environmental damage. So tell us about your conversations with Zelensky about this very scenario. Yeah, I, the, one, one of my last conversations with him uh, was last fall when the region of Kherson was partly liberated by the Ukrainian forces. And me and President Zelensky traveled down there together um, a few days after the Russians retreated from uh, the city of Kherson, north of the uh, Dnipro River, so uh, the northern half of the city. Um, and, and we went there and, and kind of traveled around, talked to the military officers there. And one of the big concerns they had was uh, the river, the river that then at that point uh, marked the front line uh, in the southern sector of the war zone. So you had the Ukrainians on the northern side of the river, and the Russians had fallen back, retreated to the southern side of the river. So Zelensky and I were talking about how, well, in order for the Ukrainians to advance any further in, in their counteroffensive, which even then was, was sort of uh, being planned and discussed, uh, it's, it's now at a much more you know, advanced state, it's, it seems to have begun. But back then in the fall, you know, they were sort of planning it out. And the concern was, how do you cross that river um, in the direction of the, of the Russian lines, the defensive lines? The Ukrainian forces would have had to cross that river under heavy artillery fire, machine gun fire. And President Zelensky basically was, was imagining that kind of operation and how, how difficult it would be, how, how many lives would be lost, um, and, and how Ukraine could do it. Of course, by flooding the river with that dam exploding, that operation becomes that much more difficult because the the river has now widened. The space between the Ukrainian side of the lines and the Russian side of the lines is that much wider as the riverbanks have flooded. So that uh, kind of extremely difficult and, and costly operation that he was envisioning back then is now 
uh, much, much worse. But as he said today, and as the military has indicated today, they're not going to stop. Um, actually, yeah, even in the fall, President Zelensky told me it may slow us down, but it's not going to stop us. So that, that seems to be where, where they are in, in kind of planning the counteroffensive now. So do you think that the Russians thought that they were going to cross at Kherson and flooded? And if so, wouldn't the Ukrainians have had a plan B? And now, obviously, plan B would be the one that would be enacted, although it'll take a couple of weeks for the waters to recede. And apparently mm -hmm. the one thing that would happen with the flooding would be that a lot of the defenses that the Russians put up, including minefields, may not be operable. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, you mentioned the machine oil that's that's now um, flowing and, and flooding across that territory. There's also Russian minefields, uh, minefields that the Russians have laid down. The soil that was holding those mines is now flooding down the riverbank and those mines, I mean, it's just, it's some kind of horrific, you know, apocalyptic scenario that, that you're now imagining with with these 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 waters breaking you know i'm i'm just still kind of trying to process it um i i guess yes the the russians uh, seem to have accepted you know it, it, all indications point to the fact that the russians did this let's start with that um let's let's kind of as, as our base case scenario um uh, so yes they they seem to have decided that the threat to their defensive lines in that region were so severe that they they had no chance of holding it and their their only uh, option or their best option was to delay the Ukrainian advance by flooding the river. Um, and yes, that that comes at a cost to the Russians, uh, a certain cost. <laughs> you could you could think of it that way. So they did flood also territories that where they had defensive positions, where they had built trenches, minefields, um, and and bases, temporary bases in the occupied areas. But it also, I, I think, in in the kind of propaganda sense for the Russians is quite damaging because, you know, Putin still insists that the entire region of Kherson, the whole region that we're talking about, he says that it's Russian. He says that he has conquered it. He has annexed it. It is and forever will be a part of Russia. You know, th this whole uh, terrible tragedy with the dam makes that look, uh, makes that claim look even more farcical because it seems by all indications that the Russians have now uh, flooded uh, territory that they claim is their own. <laughs> um, so that 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 seems that seems to be where we where we are now. Uh, you know, it, in terms of the 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 insanity of the Russian claim that they control um, and, and are trying trying to assimilate and integrate that region in, into the Russian Federation. So, in terms of uh, dangers posed to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant that's been shut down, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and it's the, the still the cause is cooling, and they do have a big uh, reservoir or a lake, but they do require cooling waters from the Dnieper River, and the dam, before this explosion, the water level was at 54 feet, and if it falls below 41 feet, uh, then they can't pump uh, cooling water to the plant. Yeah, and, and you know that, that's that's another layer, another dimension of this calamity. Um, as, as as you say, the the uh, largest nuclear power plant in Europe relies for some of its cooling water uh, on this reservoir. Uh, this reservoir has now been uh, destroyed. That that is the water from that re reservoir is now flooding uh, the the region of Kherson and and um, the, the 
half of the city of Kherson. So that, that water uh, is not going to be available to cool the nuclear reactors. Um, you know, we've heard some statements. Um, I don't want to be too alarmist here. Uh, you know, this, this is an extremely alarming situation, but um, we should point out that uh, the, the nuclear, the, the UN nuclear watchdog has come out with some statements today trying to calm people a little bit and say that, you know, there, there should be uh, enough water. This isn't an immediate kind of uh, uh, disaster, an imminent disaster of, of, of a nuclear meltdown at those reactors. But it, it is, uh, uh, it, it underscores the, the kind of in, insanity of, of some of the um, military actions we're seeing apparently on the Russian side uh, in, in the total disregard for uh, nuclear safety. I mean, you, you think back to how that nuclear power plant ended up in uh, Russian occupied territory in the first place. I remember that day very well. Um, I was in touch with Zelensky and his team. I can't remember them being more freaked out and panicked than that night. It was it was early March of last year, uh, a few, maybe less than two weeks into the invasion. And um, the Russians just came in and started shelling the thing, firing tanks at, at the nuclear power plant, um, firing heavy machine guns and taking the thing over, taking the staff hostage. I mean, this is a kind of another chapter in, in that that saga of, of the uh, the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, which has been un, under Russian occupation for um, more than a year, close to a year and a half almost. Um, and and now this is this is how the Russians are behaving. You know, they still they've consistently parked military hardware there, uh, secure in the knowledge that the, the Ukrainian side would not lob shells at, and mortars at a nuclear facility, their own nuclear facility. So they, the Russians have used it to park their own military hardware as, as a kind of uh, as a shield. You could think of it that way, that, that nuclear that nuclear power plant and its reactors. I mean, you, you, given the history of the Chernobyl disaster of 1986 that threatened, you know, half of Europe with uh, radio, radioactive fallout, um, it's, it's just especially mind boggling to, to see the Russian behavior uh, in and around that, that nuclear power plant. So Simon Schuster, is there a plan B uh, for the Ukrainian military to try and take the South and Crimea if plan A has been thwarted by the Russians blowing up the dam? I mean, just north of Zaporizhia, can they cross the Dnieper? Is there any southern route apart from the one that has just been denied them? Uh, the the short answer is yes, definitely. Uh, you know, I think uh, with with your listeners, it's, th- it's difficult to to explain it, to visualize it. You'd need a map in front of you. But um, yes, there there are other ways, other approaches to Crimea, which President Zelensky and his military uh, commanders have pointed to Crimea as the kind of ultimate prize in in the counteroffensive to to isolate and begin to recapture Crimea. Um, there are different uh, approaches. There's there's an approach through the city of Melitopol which is also very much on the map as far as the counteroffensive goes. Um, and yeah, so th- there are other ways that, that uh, Ukraine could approach that, that region. I should also say that uh, the, the Ukrainian military has said uh, today in a statement that they have uh, all of the necessary watercraft, as they put it, to cross the river even after the flooding. So they, they do not uh, aim to, to stop or forego any operations in that, uh, in that direction just because of the flooding. They said they have the equipment, they have the weapons, and, and they, they know how to get across that river even at, at that kind of – now that it's widened. 
Um, so I, I think they're not moving to, to a plan B as, as far as that whole sector is concerned, but it's, it's going to slow them down, certainly. Well, they couldn't cross as long as the flood water's coming down, right? Until, it's re- yeah, until yeah, it reaches yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah. whatever level the lake reaches. You know, I don't know how deep the breach in the dam is, but that's going to take about, what, a week before that settles down, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we're talking about, you know, a, a week or two from the simulations I saw um, uh, online today and, and, and the predictions. Um, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but, you know, when you have swift water moving, uh, I, I imagine that makes it quite a bit more difficult to, to move a large number of forces um, uh, across, you know, and, and those forces are vulnerable as, as they are crossing. Uh, even if the water does settle down and it's not moving, um, you know, that's that's the kind of picture that was worrying President Zelensky during that conversation we had last fall uh, with him down down in the south. Uh, the concern was, you know, as, as the forces are trying to cross, you have Russians lobbing um, mortars and, and, and machine gun fire at them. Uh, and the Russians have continued to do that today. Today, as the evacuations are underway in those regions, and, and there are volunteers trying to pull people out of their homes, their flooded homes, and get them to safety, to dry ground. You can see in the in the footage that, that's coming uh, coming through on social media of some of those rescue operations, you hear the shelling going on. So they're still firing in the direction of these flooded areas, uh, you, you know, even as the catastrophe is 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 a few hours old. The the the, the mortars, the shells, the rockets are continuing to fall on on those uh, parts of Ukraine. So just in the last few minutes, Simon, uh, there is an historical precedent for what just happened here with the dam being blown up. Uh, similarly, back in 1941, when the Nazis were advancing in their invasion of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. Soviet troops blew up the dam over the Dnieper River to block the advance of the Nazi troops. But in doing so, thousands of Soviet citizens, including Soviet military personnel, were drowned in the ensuing floods. Yeah, yeah, and and um, th- there are historical precedents to this. Uh, you know, the 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 main ones that that I'm aware of or go back to to World War II. I mean, early in this invasion in in February, the Ukrainians uh, also did release uh, water from a much smaller river, the Irpin River, uh, which is close to Kiev. It, it, it runs along the western side of Kiev, and as the Russians were approaching from the west. You remember, uh, some of your listeners may remember this this kind of the 40-mile the column of Russian hardware that was um, looming over Kiev for some weeks, uh, days, early in, the, early in the invasion. One of the tactics that the Ukrainians used to try to stop it, to block it, was to widen the uh, Irpin River or, or to create marshes and swamplands. Um, in the path of that column to the west of Kiev, so so that that was that was used. These were um, uh, you know not you you can't compare the scale of what has happened now in the Dnipro. The, the Dnipro River is is vastly larger, and and the number of uh, you know homes and, and and people's lives affected, the ecological damage is, is vastly greater. But the, the the release of water was also used in this invasion, right? You know early early on in the spring of last year to, to stop the Russians from advancing. And, and it did help to um, get their columns, their tanks uh, stuck in some uh, swampy mud um, a, a, along the way as, as they attempted to take Kiev and ultimately they, they failed. It's, it'll be up to military historians, historians to judge um, how critical 
that that was early on that that kind of that use of of the water from the reservoir near Kiev. Um, but it, from military officials, uh, officers that I've talked to, they said it was quite an important uh, move uh, for, for them in defending the capital. So just in closing, then, apparently the initial figures were they're evacuating 17,000 civilians. Now it's up to 40,000. So, Simon, what is happening, though, with the offensive in the north pushing through into the Donbass? Is it possible that Ukraine could push through the border into Russia and go after supply depots behind the lines? I don't see that happening. You know, I'm I'm not a military expert, but but you know, from my conversations with President Zelensky, his team, his staff, um, they're not out to you know annex parts of Russia. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. They they don't have the forces. They, they don't have the the desire. They don't have the need. This is not how they think. They don't think in these imperialistic terms that uh, that that first uh, that first put Putin on the path to to this invasion. These ideas of conquering land. Um, I think what we've seen in the Belgorod region in Western Russia, along the border with Ukraine, these kinds of minor incursions of, of you know, pro-Kiev, pro-Ukrainian forces um, moving in and, and claiming some pieces of Ukrainian, excuse me, pieces of Russian land. To me, that looks like a, a diversion. Uh, it forced Russia to move some of its forces away from Ukrainian territory, Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine, to defend its own homeland, to defend the border, to defend Russian regions. Um, So that looked like a very clever tactic to me as part of the counteroffensive to try to force the Russians to to thin their own defensive lines within Ukraine and and move forces back to Russia. I I don't see that as part of, as an indication of Ukraine, you know, uh, setting its sights on uh, the annexation or conquest of Russian territory. That's never been any kind of stated goal of President Zelensky or his armed forces. That's not what they want. They want to take back the Ukrainian territory that Russia has occupied. That's the goal of the counteroffensive. Well, Simon Schuster, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Schuster, who's a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and Foreign Policy. And his forthcoming book is The Fight is Here, Volodymyr Zelensky and the War in Ukraine. And his latest article at Time magazine is Inside Ukraine's Push to Try Putin for War Crimes. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the impact of this latest Russian attack on infrastructure on Ukrainian civilians and the latest reporting from the Washington Post indicating that a small Ukrainian military unit carried out the destruction of the Nord Stream gas pipelines, not the Russians. Then someone says you're in the wrong place, my friend. You'd better leave. And the only sound that's left after the ambulances go is Cinderella sweeping up on Desolation Road.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Emily Channel-Justice, who is the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research on political activism and social movements in Ukraine since 2012. She's the author of Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emily Channel Justice. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Emily. And what are you hearing in terms of the Ukrainian people's reaction to this blowing up of the dam and the flooding of Kherson and all the way down into the Black Sea with a a lot of ecological damage? 40,000 people are being evacuated. What's the sense of this, which is considered to be a war crime, by the way? Absolutely. That's that's really the main thing. This is just another example of the Putin regime committing war crimes to attack civilians, to create an ecological catastrophe um, in the name of, of, you know, presumably doing something to, to counter the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, you know, this is something that we've actually been concerned about for some time. We've seen over the course of the last year that, that Putin has been attacking infrastructural targets a lot of the focus has been on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, um, but there has been a lot of discussion about the significance of this dam and the number of people uh, who will be affected by by this um, the destruction of the dam. In addition to people, the you know ecological factor, the environmental damage, um, the animals that are being you know they're they're just drowning. There's nothing that anybody can do. Um, and then we've also today heard reports of. Uh, Russians firing on the evacuation, so targeting people who are trying to leave the region in response to this flooding or being attacked as well. So since the Hakovka Dam also is a site of a big hydroelectric plant, which is now out of order, and we know the Zaporizhia plant has uh, been shut down, the Europe's largest nuclear plant, what's the situation vis-a-vis a shortage of electricity? Because the Russians have been targeting electrical grids uh, for the longest time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is, you know, this is part of Ukraine that that Ukraine has not had total control over for a, a lot of the, the past year. Um, so, you know, really, um, electricity supply is not not my primary concern. I think the bigger concerns are about the long-term functioning of the nuclear power plant, the potential of any missile strike on that power plant, an accidental missile falling on the power plant of the Ukrainian air air defense, you know, hitting a a missile that's shot out of Russia um, and the debris falls on the nuclear power plant. These are some of the, the larger concerns in terms of the structural integrity of these things. Um, you know, I think the Ukrainian government has done a, a pretty good job of anticipating a lot in terms of potential usage of energy. And, you know, luckily we're in summer right now. Heating is not of great concern. Um, but for me, it's about the, you know, yet another example of targeting civilian infrastructure and potentially putting all of Europe at risk with the proximity to the nuclear power plant. And I noticed, uh, Emily, that you're on the list of 500 Americans who are now being banned from Russia. This was an official lift put out by the Russian foreign ministry. But curiously enough, it had people on the list that had nothing to do with Russia, like Brad Raffensperger, who Trump asked for the 11,780 votes down Secretary of State in 
Georgia and the prosecutor in New York and Jack Smith, the federal prosecutor and the D.C. detective who shot the insurgent on January the 6th. So what did you make of that list? It seemed like the list was designed to basically help Donald Trump in his re-election. In other words, this is a part of, of what could be an active measures campaign in 2024, not unlike the one in 2016. Absolutely. I mean, to some extent, I think, you know, these sanctions are, are arbitrary in the sense that we never know when they're coming. You know, we never know when they're going to be announced and what the criteria for being on this list is, is, is your guess is as good as mine. Um, several of my colleagues and I at the Ukrainian Research Institute were, were recognized for um, so-called promoting Russophobic attitudes. That's what got us on the list. Um, so, you know, the educational project that we're trying to do at the Ukrainian Research Institute is clearly getting the, the attention of the of the Russian foreign ministry, um, uh, you know, how much this type of information circulates um, among, um, among people in Russia who are working toward, you know, making the US election go in their favor. Um, that's something else to think about. I think we really need to be aware of potential new forms of potential Russian interference in the in the 2024 election, um, because it's certainly you know, the Biden administration has shown so much support for Ukraine. Um, it's certainly not in Russia's interest for Biden to get reelected. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at any tactic they go for at this point. So you're in Europe, in Italy at the moment. And Italy, of course, is led by a right wing government. And a lot of these right wing governments in Europe, and particularly in Hungary, for example, have been supportive of Putin and not supportive of Ukraine. What's the reading there in Italy on support for Ukraine? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I haven't really, I'm in Naples, which is, um, you know, a, a city kind of known for um, its its unique uh, identity. Um, and I it's the one place I've been in Europe in the past year that I haven't seen very many Ukrainian flags, maybe one or two since I've been here. Um, it's hard to gauge public opinion. Um, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't really seem like something people are thinking about on a day to day basis. Um, although, you know, the, the the prime minister of Italy has continued to show her support for Ukraine. So, um, you know, it's it's hard to say there's a lot of concern right now about Russian or, or sorry, European just general fatigue around Europe toward the Ukrainian cause. The number of refugees has sort of stabilized. You know, maybe the, the war doesn't seem quite as threatening to them. And yet Europe is still being asked to take on a lot of the costs. And I think that that's starting to wear on people. Um, the solidarity doesn't seem quite as apparent as it did when I was in Europe in, in April and May of 2022. So for me, this is a little cause of alarm. You know, I'm not an expert on Italian public opinion or, or anything like that. So I can't really say what any measures are. Um, but just a sort of general sense of, of feeling pretty distant from the war and the effect on Ukrainians, which is, is a cause for concern. And do you have any reading on how this latest incident of the blowing up of the dam is playing, given that it's considered a, a war crime attacking civilian infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, you know, you know, advocates for Ukraine will use this as another mechanism to to remind people in Europe that this is still happening. I've seen a lot of renewed calls for, for example, um, air defense systems, F-16s, any kind of fighter jets. Um, so this is a situation where I hope that the, the governments 
around Europe respond in the way that is necessary, regardless of public opinion. Absolutely, we want, you know, we want public opinion to support arming Ukraine, but as long as as long as governments are willing to help Ukraine protect itself from this type of attack and later on hold Russia accountable for these types of war crimes, you know, that's really the most important thing right now. And these these continued threats, these continued strikes, these continued targeting of civilian infrastructures. Um, you know, it, enough is enough. You know, it, it has to, something really definitive has to be done. So there's a report in the Washington Post on the origins of the blowing up of the Nord Stream uh, 1 and 2 pipelines that starts to point the finger at Ukraine. And initially, of course, the U.S. government and others have suggested that uh, it was the Russians that blew up the pipelines. And actually, I assume that that was the case. But there's more and more evidence, uh, apparently, and and this evidence that the Washington Post now has comes from the intelligence leaks from the U.S. Airman, who was leaking all kinds of classified information to a group of teenage kids in his chat group through Discord. And apparently the Washington Post got hold of from some of these kids that got this highly classified material. And it's a European government has not announced which it is. It's probably the the BND in Germany, but the European Intelligence Service got this information and passed it on to the CIA that there was a, a Ukrainian group of divers, a small group that rented a, a yacht in Germany and pulled off this operation, which initially, when initial reports came out of Germany, it seemed like a little unlikely that such a small group could be able to pull something off like this. But this latest intelligence report certainly starts to indicate that maybe Ukraine operatives working out of Germany, but working in Poland as well, were responsible. So, Emily, if this proves to be the case, what kind of impact will this have on Ukraine? Because obviously the U.S. government, you know, essentially try to blame Russia when in fact mm-hmm. it may have been Ukraine. And the reason mm-hmm. being, I suppose, you know, not to upset European public opinion in terms of its support for Ukraine, particularly in Germany, Sorry. where the gas was destined. Yeah, yeah. This is um, so. I haven't read this this report. I followed the the previous efforts um, to make such claims that were not grounded in any in any real solid evidence that I could see. Um, so, you know, my suspicion would be um, that no, you know, if it if it does become clear or it seems to be indicating that it was Ukrainian um, actors who who did in fact um, achieve this um, you know this destruction of the of the Nord Stream two pipeline. My suspicion would really be that the Ukrainian administration is is fairly likely to distance themselves from you know themselves having having organized such an operation. Um, you know, presumably it 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 would behoove them to suggest that it was sort of independent actors who did such a thing. And again, I have not read this report, so I'm not corroborating it at all. Um, you know, and, and it, it's a little bit of a, you know, um, it, it seemed to me that we had definitive evidence that it was Russia. And now we seem to have definitive evidence that it was Ukraine. It, you know, this could go back and forth. And, and ultimately, um, you know, the Nord Stream 2 was a pipeline that was being used to promote the Putinist political regime in Germany in particular, and it was working really effectively. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's another example of, of infrastructure that's being used in a political way. Obviously, 
you know, the Putin regime is willing to destroy infrastructural targets. We've seen that over and over again. Um, to me, it doesn't, and any evidence really about this doesn't really change the situation that much. It's it's not a, you know, it's not a war crime that put hundreds of thousands of innocent civilian animal lives in, in danger and, and caused an ecological disaster. You know, it's a, it's sort of on a different scale than what's just happened at Nova Krakowa. So um, it's a, yeah, it's a different, it's a little bit of a different question for me that that's sort of far less important than the, um, you know, than the stakes for Ukrainians right now. Well, the report in the Washington Post indicates that the operation was carried out by the Ukrainian military and that they deliberately did not inform President Zelensky about it to keep him out of the loop so that he is not in any way held responsible. So at least that's the latest reporting. So. Right. We, I mean, obviously, if you haven't read the report, it's something maybe we should discuss later. But it is about <laughs> obviously blowing yeah. up infrastructure. And, you know, initially, and I went along with most of the press believing uh, what the U.S. government was saying, which was that it's Russia, and it may, that may not be the case. So we'll, we yeah. will find out. But we'll wait. Uh, I think, yeah, waiting to see is definitely, you know. Um, right. But I don't think there's happen. any doubt about this latest situation. With this uh, dam, I don't think there's any doubt, surely, that the Russians did this. That uh, Absolutely. And it, almost impossible to believe that the Ukrainians would inflict this kind of damage on themselves. Absolutely. So, uh, and, of course, the Russian propaganda has been all over the place on it, too. They, they haven't got their story straight until they took several attempts to get their story straight. So who knows? It may have yeah. actually been, it may it may have been a, a Russian general who did it. Who knows? Given the state of the Russian military, so exactly, yeah. <laughs> so just in closing, though, in terms of the state of the Russian military, one of the things that's so disturbing about uh, what's happening with the Russian military is the growth of these independent actors and uh, private military groups like the Wagner group, and it turns out there's a lot more of them. There's Hadirov, the Chechen warlord, and Gazprom, the company behind the Nord Stream pipelines. They have at least two separate military divisions as well operating. So with the growth of these private militaries inside Russia and the possibility of, of coup attempts against Putin, and many analysts think that one of the reasons that Putin supports Wagner is that he's got his own private military as a hedge against a military coup. So these are very disturbing trends. And, of course, history shows that when a state loses its monopoly over violence, it's on the path to becoming a failed state. We've seen warlords take over in various states all around the world. Is that something that you're concerned about, that the Russian military could disintegrate and warlords could take over the world's largest nuclear arsenal? You know, it's not it's not outside of the realm of possibility. Um, you know, these private military brigades and regimes are certainly attempting to, um, to, to use this war as leverage to gain more power. Uh, you know, we saw Yevgeny Prigozhin of the Wagner Group make claims against the Russian um, the Russian ability to to supply its army. I mean, this is the most visible form of dissent that we've seen in Russia really since the war began. And the fact that Prigozhin has a you know a military behind him and and some certainly some support 
um, within Russia, it does make you really wonder what his ultimate goals are. And I think Putin has tried his best to placate people like Kogosian for a long time, and Kadyrov is the same way. Um, but these are the people who I think would be most likely to make a play for the Russian presidency if you know, if they can discredit Putin, if Putin makes a grave misstep and they sort of see an opening, those would be the types of people um, that I would see making that type of move. And I certainly don't think that Kadyrov would advocate for Prigozhin or vice versa. So you also have this problem of potential competition between the two of them. The question at that point, though, I think would be whether or not they could compete with one another and sustain this invasion in Ukraine. You know, perhaps that would be um, the first step in enforcing Russian troops out of Ukraine in the first place. Uh, if the if the focus of the the fight for control over power um, becomes internal to Russia, then we we sort of have to rethink where this war is going. Well, Emily Channel Justice, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Emily Channel Justice, who is the director of the Timurti Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University, a sociocultural anthropologist who has been doing research on political activism and social movements in Ukraine since 2012. Her latest book is Without the State, Self-Organization and Political Activism in Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.